God, we come to you and we honor you. We worship you today. Because when we were stuck in our sin, when we were stuck in darkness, you made a way. In the middle of our mess, in the middle of our hopelessness, light stepped in. And we thank you for that. We worship you today. We honor you, God. And we just take a second to pray as we get ready to open your word together that you would speak to us more clearly than we've ever heard. Because just like that verse said, we all came searching for something, a way out of darkness. And we believe, God, that through your word today that we will find hope, peace, and truth in the person of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, high five somebody around you. Tell them good morning. It is so great to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Nick Newman, and I want to say welcome on behalf of my wife and the rest of the team here at Propel. It's an honor to get to worship with you today. And if it is your first time, I want to say thank you. We realize that, man, picking a church is not easy. Trying a church for the first time can, one, can be one of those daunting experiences. So we hope today that you feel welcome. So we're not going to point you out or make you feel weird in this worship experience. The only thing we're going to do is ask you that for just a second, take some time during the worship experience today and fill out this connect card. It's how we can connect with you and we're not going to show up on your doorstep. We just want to send you a letter that says thanks for being here. But church, could you help me welcome every person here for the first time? We're honored that you're here today, and I'm excited to have the privilege and opportunity of opening God's Word with you. We are in week two of a message series called Really Good News, and I had a message planned for today, but I took a team with me to Birmingham, Alabama this week. There was a team of eight of us that we hit the road on Monday morning. We went to what was called the ARC Conference, and here at this conference, what I want you to know is that we're a part of a network of churches. We're not doing this by ourselves. There are thousands of churches all around the world that, that live like us, think like us, are really passionate about seeing people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. And so we went to this conference, and we were having an incredible time, and I was standing in the back of the room during one of the sessions, and there was a pastor teaching, and I just felt in that moment to take a second and pause and say, hey, God, what do you think the people of Mount Pleasant really need? Like, like I could dream of a great message, I could prepare all the time, and I believe that God meets me in the middle of preparation, but I think there's something powerful about taking a second and pausing to say, hey God, do you have a word for your people? Hey God, do you have something you want to say? Because I could preach an incredible message, but what God wants to say to your heart is more powerful than anything I could ever say. And so this morning I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture where God took me, and it was John chapter 8, verse 1. This is a story that maybe if you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with. It's called The Woman Caught in the Act of Adultery. But if you've never read Scripture before, I believe you're going to learn some incredible things about the truth and the goodness of Jesus today. It says this in John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, according to the law of Moses, it teaches us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for accusing Jesus. I want to set the scene for you for a moment because Jesus has been traveling. He's been doing incredible ministry. We've seen miracles happen over and over again. And Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, is he's about to have church. So they sit down in the temple and he's ready. Peter's already got done leading two songs, probably how he loves us. And he's finishing up the worship set. And Jesus steps up to the table and he's getting ready to teach. And it's in this moment that these religious leaders, these scholars feel like it's the best time to catch Jesus off of, God, off of his guard. They think in this moment, let's do this. Let's bring a woman who we've caught in the act of adultery and throw her in front of Jesus and see if we can't trap him. It's in this moment that when I read the story, I begin to to ponder and ask a couple of questions. Number one, how did these men catch her? Have you ever stepped back and read scripture and thought, how in the world would these religious leaders, these people who, who would consider themselves pure and clean, catch someone in the act of adultery? But, but more importantly, I think when I read this passage of scripture, I go, where's the man involved? Because in order to be caught in the act of adultery, it takes two to tango, right? Where's he at? These religious leaders that were so caught up in being so truth-filled, figuring out that the law was the way to go, these religious leaders throw this woman in front of Jesus, missing the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place. These religious leaders are ready, stone in hand, ready to crucify this woman, ready to stone her to death to beat her because she's been caught in the act. She has been found guilty. Now, I think you and I play multiple roles in this story, the first being the woman caught in the act of adultery. Because when we stand in front of Jesus, we are guilty. I mean, according to the law, what she deserves is death. And what Scripture teaches you and I very simply, very clearly, is that because of sin, there's a debt on our life, and that debt can only be paid by death. So according to the law, we are Guilty, and maybe I think this woman is feeling guilt. She's feeling shame because all of these people are publicly seeing what she's done. But I think you and I have been there in the arena of guilt and shame before. Having our sin issues exposed, maybe you were addicted to drugs, maybe it was sex, cheating, lying, or some other sin that people publicly knew about. But even if they didn't, according to Scripture, when you and I sin, We deserve death. It's in this moment that we see that if this woman was to be stoned, she would get exactly what she deserves. But thankfully, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Continues on, John chapter 8, verse 6. It says, but Jesus. I think there's power in a but Jesus moment. Like there's power when you and I get past our sin, get past our guilt, get past our shame and realize there's nothing we could do to fix ourselves. But Jesus in this moment, I found myself in a similar situation over seven years ago. I was stuck in a drug addiction. I was trapped. I couldn't get out. I had tried everything. I had 12 step, two step, one step. I'd done it all, but nothing was able to get me out until Jesus stepped into the picture. 
But when Jesus showed up on the scene, everything in my life changed. And it says, but Jesus then bent down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. I think there's power in a but Jesus moment. But the first thing I want you to know this morning is that you have an advocate in Jesus. You have an advocate. What Jesus could have done in this moment in order to please the people around him is just say, no, you're right. She's guilty. She deserves to die. Let's stone her. Instead, he takes a pause and he begins to bend down. And we see later on in the scripture that he's standing with her. He's right beside her. He's there with her in the middle of her mess, in the middle of her brokenness, in the middle of her situation. You and I have an advocate in Jesus. Jesus, in the middle of your sin and shame arena, is willing to publicly represent you before God. He's not hiding from you. He's not wondering where in the world or how could you do that. No, no, no. He's standing with you ready to advocate on your behalf. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, Family, I'm writing you these things so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, so, so the goal is you don't, right? I want you, if there's anything, I would pray and plead and hope that you don't sin. But if you do, here's what you need to know. We have an advocate with the Father, which is Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's almost as if in the middle of your guilt and your shame, because you and I deserve to die to pay the price for our sins, you need to know that you have an advocate in Jesus. It's almost like this. I picture this courtroom where we're standing before God, and you and I are guilty. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've made mistakes. Yes, we've messed up. But Jesus steps up and says, hey, I know that they're guilty. Yes, they've made mistakes. Yes, they've sinned. But they place their hope and trust in me. And because they've done that, you've said that they now receive exactly what I receive. They receive grace. They receive mercy. They receive the beauty of what you have in me. When God looks at you, be through Jesus, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the payment of Christ on your behalf. You and I have an advocate in Jesus. Are we guilty? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what, when God looks at you and I, when we've said yes to Jesus, and it's not complicated. I think we make it too complicated sometimes. Like salvation is, is a 10-step is a program. It's not. It's by simply placing your hope and trust in Jesus that you get what he deserved because he took what you deserved. That's the beauty of an advocate. Jesus is advocating on your behalf in my behalf. We go on to read in John chapter 8, verse 7. It says, When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and started writing on the ground. So Jesus is writing. I love Jesus sometimes. Like He is the most OG ever. Jesus is there, he's on the ground, he bends down, he's writing, then he takes a pause for a moment. He's like, okay, you want to stone her? Cool, do, do it. But here's, here's the qualification. If you want to kill her, you can't have sinned at all in your life. 
like ultimate mic drop, right? It's Jesus in this moment that we see a different side of him. He says, hey, if you really want to be filled with justice, cool, but be sure you're going to go the whole way. Because if you're going to be willing to stone her, you need to know there's probably some things in your life that you're, you should be stoned for as well. And the only person in this moment that has the right to pick up rocks is Jesus. Because he's without sin. He hasn't made mistakes. He hasn't failed. He hasn't messed up. It's in this moment in John chapter 8 that we realize that there are people who are ready and willing at any moment to stone a woman for the mistakes that she's made. The second thing I want you to know this morning is that people don't need an accuser. They need an advocate. When we look at what Jesus did for this woman, and we look at the whole scenario, I think what people need is not for you and I to accuse them, but to advocate for them. To be willing to stand with them as a public representative in the middle of their mess, in the middle of their guilt, in the middle of their shame, and not continuously accuse them for the things that they've done wrong. Did the woman sin? Absolutely. Is she guilty? Yes. You telling her she's guilty, what does that do? But Jesus says, hey, I know you're guilty. I know you've sinned. I know you've made mistakes. But I love you anyways. People don't need an accuser. They need an advocate. I believe that's true for, for so many reasons because in this scenario, you and I see both accusers and advocates. I actually think accusing is easier than advocating. Because it's easier for you and I to, I think accusation lives on the surface level, but to be an advocate means you and I have to look past people's problems and actually see potential in them. To be an accuser is incredibly easy. These men have picked up stones ready to kill her, but you know, when you and I accuse someone, we've never been more like Satan. Let me read you a passage of scripture. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. It says, Now now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. The enemy is called the accuser. So when you and I choose to accuse... We've never been more like Satan. When you and I choose to advocate, we've never been more like Jesus. Because what Jesus says is that we are to be people who are there for the hurting, who are there for the broken. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, For I did not come for the well, for the well don't need a physician, but I came for the sick and the broken to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. I think that it's important. Can we pull up that Revelation 12 verse? Again, it says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Notice it says our brothers. I think before you accuse someone, you have to remember that that's your family. That's your family. It says, yeah, they're, they're accusing our brothers and sisters because when you accuse, you're acting like Satan. I think there's too much accusation going on in the body of Christ rather than love and forgiveness. Because when you and I understand just how much God has forgiven us, I think it positions us in a better place to forgive other people. And I think this is one of the reasons 
why lost people don't want to come to church. I think this is one of the reasons why unchurched people stay unchurched. is because the church is filled with accusation. I heard a pastor once say that Christians are the only army that shoot and kill their wounded. Like when somebody goes down, when somebody gets hurt, when somebody's made a mistake and fall, rather than helping them up or hurting them, we'd rather tweet about it or post on social media, yep, saw that one coming. People don't need an accuser. They need an advocate. They need somebody in the middle of their mess, in the middle of their brokenness to say, hey, look, I realize life sucks. And hey, I realize you've got guilt and shame that you're carrying around. But I just want you to know that there's a God who sees past your problems. He sees purpose in your life. He sees potential. He sees that in him, your best days are not behind you, but are ahead. And that in Christ, you can be made new, no matter how broken you currently are. That's the kind of church I want you and I to be. That's what I believe God has called our house to look like. To be a place for people who are filled with guilt and shame to come in and know that they may never have an advocate outside of these walls, but in this house, you've got an advocate. In this house, you've got somebody who's willing to stand with you in the middle of your brokenness. In this house, You've got people who aren't afraid to get messy because we know God gets his hands dirty every single day. Because while we were still sinning, Christ chose to die for us. I think you and I have to assess who we are in this story. I think first, we are the woman caught in the act of adultery, but, but two, I think I find myself sometimes being the person holding the rocks. I think sometimes I find myself as the accuser to look at what I don't realize in that moment as my brother and sister and, and I'm ready to hurl stones at them. I'm ready to, to cast the first stone, but Jesus said, he who is without sin. Do you know that when you and I try and, and judge others, when we, when we try and, and be the one that hurls stones at people, we actually take the role of God now, people take it out of context all the time. Only God can judge me. It's not. That's not how it says it. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. We're going to kick off a new series after Easter called Things Jesus Never Said. And, uh, and so can't wait for that one. But, um, but when you and I choose to judge people, we actually step into the role of God. And when we do that, here's what we're saying. Hey, God, I actually don't think you can handle it. I don't think you're good enough to do your role. So let me take over for a moment. Now, when we say it like that, you go, I would never say that, but we do it. You and I can either be accusers or advocates, but we can't be both. John chapter 8, verse 9 says, At this, those who had heard began to go away one by one, one at a time. The oldest first, because they realized they had a lot more sin than everybody else, (laughs) until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Now, there are many scholars who debate on what Jesus was actually writing. Some people say that he was just really doodling, right? Like he just bent down and he was like, sounds like a good time to play Pictionary. Other people believe that what he was writing were the mistresses of all these other religious leaders. 
We know that Jesus has no problem calling people out for sexual sin. We're in John chapter 8. You go back to John chapter 4. He already calls out this woman for trifling. Like We know Jesus does that. So it's in this moment as Jesus is bent down and he's writing things on the ground that these men realize, oh, oh, he knows. Oh, he knows about that thing that I did, and he knows about this thing that I did. He, he's got to be the Messiah. There's no way I could judge this woman. So they begin one by one dropping their stones. If you've been around in one of our freedom groups, you'd, you'd know that one of the things that I'll do with our team from time to time is, is I'll hold my hands up just like this. And, and when someone's sharing something incredibly deep or, or hurtful or painful that's going on in their life, maybe it's a sin issue, I'll go, I got no stones. In this moment, what these men realized is they had so many faults and flaws and failures, there was no way they could stone this woman. And I think you and I have to embrace that. I ain't got no stones. You got sin? Yeah, yeah, me too. You've made mistakes? Me too. When you and I drop our stones, when we choose to let go of the things that we would use as weapons against other people, I believe that something powerful happens. People don't need you to accuse them. They need you to stand with them. I believe that some of you today have a skewed view of God that you see God as a stone-hurling God. Like he's up in heaven ready. When you make mistakes or you have sin issues or you've done something wrong, you think God is ready to just throw stones down from heaven. And it, it comes in the form of things like this. Well, I made this mistake, so God's causing this to happen to me. No, 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 God is filled with love and grace. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that God causes bad things to happen. What he says is what the enemy intended for evil, I will use for good. So I believe for some of us, we have a skewed view of God, and we can look simply to Jesus to realize who God really is. He's not the accuser. He is the advocate. John chapter 8, verse 10 says that Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. If you're here today and you find yourself as the woman, you've been caught in the midst of your sin, your guilt, and your shame, you need to know that through the power of what Jesus did for you on the cross, Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. Christ isn't looking to condemn you. He's not looking to make you feel guilty. He died for that. He's looking to give you grace. Right. And there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. I taught this message like two years ago. So for some of you, you you've never heard it. it. Conviction pushes you into the presence of God. Condemnation isolates you away from the presence of God. So when he says, I don't condemn you, when you feel condemned, you don't run to God, you run away from God. And the enemy would love nothing more than in the middle of your sin, your guilt, and your shame make you feel like you can't run into the arms of a loving father. You and I have to know the difference. You and I have to know that God's desire for you, yes, he will convict you of sin, but his desire is not to condemn us, but to love us in the middle of our mistakes and our mess. And for some of you, you're reading along in your Bible and you've realized that I left out a part of John chapter 8, verse 11. And here's why. Because most people feel like if you give grace, then people have 
the freedom to just continue to sin. John chapter 8, verse 11 says, No one, sir, she said, neither do I condemn you. Then Jesus declared, Go and sin no more. Grace does not give you the freedom to sin. Grace empowers you to leave your sin behind. I'm going to say it again. Grace does not give you the freedom of sin. Grace empowers you to leave your sin behind. The call to repentance, the call for life change in this moment for this woman, when Jesus was talking to her, he says, I don't condemn you. I have no stones to throw at you. I only have love and grace for you. Now leave your sin behind. That's the goodness of grace. I think sometimes we get afraid that if we preach a grace-heavy message that people will just go on and do whatever they want. But hear me, friends, if you've experienced the grace of God, it leads you away from sin, not to it. If you've experienced the freedom that comes from the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ, it doesn't push you and I to desire sin more. It pushes us to a place where we desire more of God. Romans chapter 6 Verse 14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. In other words, I think it shows you and I that grace provides a covering. It's in the covering of grace that every relationship that I tried to have that tried to fill the void of lack of love in my life is covered. It's under the covering of grace that the loneliness that I tried to fix with drug addiction was completely resolved. It's under the covering of grace that whatever sin issue, whatever mistakes, no, it wasn't drugs that could fix it, wasn't alcohol that could fix it, pornography addiction will never fix it, but under the covering of grace, you and I can find fulfillment in Jesus. You and I need to know today that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team back out for a moment. And this invitation is going to be a little bit different for for some of us in here today because I believe that some of you are feeling guilty you, you find yourself, you resonate in the story as the woman who was caught in the act. You are guilty, you are filled with shame, you are filled with condemnation, but can I give you good news? Jesus died for that. He died for every burden, he died for every guilty feeling, he died for every moment of your life where you failed and dropped the ball. And what he didn't ask this woman was to go fix herself. He simply said, I don't condemn you. I have grace for you. I love you. And I believe today, for some of you, today is the day where you receive that love and that grace. So with every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. If you say, hey, pastor, that's, that's me. I'm guilty. I realize I've made mistakes. I realized I've sinned. And, and in the middle of all that, I know that I need Jesus to be the Savior of my life. I'm going to stop trying to fix myself. I'm going to let God save me. If that's you, 
would you just simply lift your hand for a moment? Say, today's that day. See those. See those. Here's what we're going to do, church. Nobody's going to pray alone. We're all going to pray together. Will you say this with me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, can you help me celebrate with those who made decisions for Jesus? And for some of you, you're wondering, they gave me a note card in the beginning. What in the world is that for? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. See, we're coming up on Easter Sunday next week. And I think there's something powerful that happens when you and I choose to not only pray for people, but we take the next step to invite them to encounter an advocate. Where they encounter a God who loves them despite their sin, despite their faults, their flaws, their failures and mistakes. I think there's something powerful when we intentionally choose to dedicate the next seven days to bringing one person next week. And so I gave you a note card, and what I want you to do first is I want you to fold the note card in half. For some of you, you're like, which way? You pick. And on this note card, I want you to write the same name on both sides of it. And so I've got the guy who I've been praying for for a long time and believing that next week is going to be the week where he encounters the advocate and his life is changed forever. And on this note card, what I'm going to do after I write the name on it is I'm going to tear it in half. What we read in scripture is there are some things that we can do and there are other things that only God can do. And so I'm going to put one half of this note card in my pocket. And during this next song, I'm going to lay the other half on the stage. And I'm going to keep my half this week as a reminder that, God, I've committed to you to invite this person, to bring this person. And you say, well, well, how do you get them there? I don't care what you got to do. Tie them up, throw them in your trunk, do it, bribe them with breakfast, do whatever. Because here's what I know. One encounter with Jesus could change their life forever. So I'm going to put this one in my pocket as a reminder next week. And I'm going to give this one over to God because what we read in Scripture is that it's only through the prompting of God's Spirit that people receive salvation. So I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to trust God to do His. During this next song as we worship, I want you to just bring that name and lay them down here on the front. And our team and our staff is going to commit to praying over those next week. Will you stand to your feet for a moment? I'm going to pray for us and then we'll worship and you can bring these down front and drop them off. God, we love you so much and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that in you we have an advocate. We have someone who's standing on our behalf with the Father. God, we thank you that You died in our place and covered our sins. And we're believing that next week there are going to be so many people who encounter you. Lord, I think there are people in our lives that we're praying for, that we're believing that 
We know just one encounter with you could change everything. Just one encounter with you could break every lie they've believed about who you really are. And so we ask God, the people you've laid on our hearts, would be open to an invitation to church. We pray that they would receive your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that we get to play a small part in their salvation story. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.